Hi, thanks for joining us on Him We Proclaim with our Bible teacher, Dr. John Fonville. We are continuing the series called The Glorious Second Coming of Jesus Christ. John has entitled the next several messages, The Peace of the Church. Is Jesus interested in there being peace in his church? Absolutely. And what disrupts that peace is tolerating sin, false teachers, and their false doctrine. It's upsetting to believers and disruptive to the gospel going forth. One could say it's an age-old problem. The teaching today will give us a good foundation about this important topic to believers. Here's John with the Peace of the Church, Part 6. So as I've pointed out to you in verse 11, Paul has this play on words in the Greek, which you don't see in the English. But in the Greek, what you have is, is you have people who are not busily working properly, but they are busy working improperly is basically what he's saying. He says, we hear that some are not busy doing legitimate work because they left their day jobs, but rather they're busy bodies. They're doing illegitimate work. So the problem wasn't idleness. The problem was false teaching. Some believe that because this Sabbath rest has now entered and and the second coming, the resurrection has occurred, they were deceived in believing that, well, work itself is now done away with. So we better pick up this new baton and begin to teach this new teaching to the church. And as a result, some were deceived into thinking that they didn't have to abide by this old world structure such as working. But they didn't stop working, Paul says. They just started working in the wrong way. They left their day jobs, which was benefiting their neighbors, And they picked up this busybody job, which is being a burden to them. And so they were going about in the church, spreading this disorder, spreading this disunity, spreading this insubordination and rebellion throughout the church. So the presenting problem was their idleness from leaving their day job. But the underlying issue and problem that Paul is addressing here is the disorder of false teaching and, and, and the disorder of bad conduct in the church that associates with it. These disorderly members were interfering with the business that probably belonged to the official leaders of the church, both in teaching and administration and finances. We saw that. So look at verse 12 and look what Paul says. In response to those who are being disorderly, he gives a very sharp command. Look at verse 12. He says, now those who are such, we command and exhort. This combination of putting together command and exhort is a way for Paul to emphasize as strongly as he can, stop it. Stop it. This is a very very strong form of commanding. He is, again, emphasizing, also note right here, He says, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is emphasizing that to disobey his apostolic command is to disobey the Lord himself. And his command is very clear and very plain. He strongly commands these disorderly members. He says, return to your legitimate places of employment. In other words, work in quietness. And he says, so that you're able to buy what you need, eat your own bread. Now, here's the question as we look at this, because this is very straightforward, and there doesn't need much explanation for how you discipline disorderly people. You tell them to cut it out. That's what Paul's doing here. 
But the question underneath that is, is why is Paul in such a determined mood, right? Why does he exercise his apostolic authority in issues such as strong and forceful command to those who are being disorderly in the church? Here's the answer. The answer is the gospel. Specifically, the hope of the gospel, the second coming of Christ. Because as I showed you as we began, every chapter is governed by this theme of the second coming of Christ. Paul understood that the most significant event yet ahead in redemptive history is the second coming of Christ, so that when Jesus returns, he will complete God's eternal plan of salvation, and he will usher in the consummation of God's kingdom. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Paul refers to the glorious appearing of Christ. He says, as quote, the church's blessed hope. And so the church throughout these centuries has confessed in the words of the Nicene Creed, as we will do in just a few minutes, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That is the church's great blessed hope. So because this is the hope of the gospel, it is not surprising to see that the enemy of our faith would seek to distort the hope of the gospel. And that he would do that so that in chapter 2, verse 2, he could so alarm and fear in believers and destroy their assurance, take away their hope, cause confusion. In chapter 3, verses 6 and 11, so that he can sow disorder, rebellion, insubordination in the church and get people focused away from the hope of the gospel to live in deception, chapter 2. So it's not surprising that the enemy of our faith would want to destroy the very thing that God has given to us that enables us to live a godly life now and to live in the hope of the future of the world to come. And so as we reflect on Paul's command this morning to the disorderly, it's very straightforward. You go to them and you tell them you need to stop. You cut it off. And we do this for the sake of the gospel to protect believers in the church. And as we reflect on this, there's two important lessons for us to carefully consider for why Paul is doing this. Here's the first one. The, the, The first lesson that we see from this for us is that we are to work so that we can provide for the genuine needs of the church. That's that's what we see Paul doing here. The the social setting and these problems of 2,000 years ago in this church in Thessalonica, they're very far removed from us. But But the underlying principle of what Paul is showing us here is the same. What were these disorderly believers doing? These disorderly believers were focused on their own needs rather than the needs and concerns of the church body. And so Paul commands them, he says, return to your day jobs so that you stop being an unnecessary burden to the church. Rather than benefiting the church, they were burdening the church, they were sucking and taking away finances away from genuine needs that needed to be met in this church. And so when there are genuine needs that that exist in the church, the members of the church, Paul teaches us, have a responsibility to meet those needs. And for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, 
he says this to the church in, in Ephesus. He says, let the thief no longer steal, obviously illegitimate work. He says, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. In Titus chapter three, verses 13 through 14, uh, there was a similar problem going on in Crete with these young church plants in Crete. And so Paul says in chapter three, verse 13, he exhorts this young Cretan church. He says, this is very interesting. He says, do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. See that they lack nothing. He says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and listen and not be unfruitful. So who are Zenos and Apollos? Zenos and Apollos were members of Paul's traveling missionary team in the first century. They were, they, were, they were just this apostolic assistants who were traveling around helping Paul with all of the churches that he planted. And they were probably most likely the carriers of the letter to Crete, and they probably gave it to the, the, Paul's letter uh, of Titus to the Cretan churches. And so what you had was is that leaders of the early church, because they were traveling and they didn't have a, a place where they just a home base, but they were always traveling, leaders of the early church were often um, uh, urged Christian communities, extend hospitality to these traveling preachers, extend hospitality to Paul's apostolic missionary team and other strangers who come into your midst. And so Zenos and Apollos have faithfully fulfilled their mission to Crete. And Paul instructs Titus and, and the Crete believers, he says to them, he says, do your very best to send my workers on their way, listen, fully equipped for their next mission. Paul exhorts the Cretan believers, the church, to provide for the needs of genuine, faithful Christian gospel ministers. So just as in Thessalonica, so here in Crete, Paul's concern is for the spread of the gospel to unbelievers. And the primary way that he spread the gospel was through, listen, his missionary traveling team that was spreading the gospel. And so both in Thessalonica and Crete, young believers in the churches faced the threat of false teachers distorting the gospel and then the disorder that results from these false teachers. In chapter one, verse 12 of Titus, Paul describes false teachers like this. He says, false teachers in the church are, quote, evil beasts. His point is this, both in Thessalonica, both in Crete, and he also did it to the churches in Galatia, in Galatians chapter six. If genuine gospel leaders are neglected, false teachers will devour the churches like wild beasts, like wild animals. There will be nobody there to protect the sheep. Therefore, Paul says, it's of paramount importance to meet the needs of the leaders in order to preserve and propagate the work of the gospel. Paul, uh, in, in, in Titus chapter three, verse 14, 
Paul says that providing for faithful gospel ministers is to the church's advantage so that you will not be unfruitful. He says Christians become fruitful, churches become fruitful as they seek to provide for the needs of those in the congregation, particularly their leaders, so that the gospel is always central to the church life. This is what Martin Luther says about this back in the Reformation. He says this, he says, only now do we understand how necessary this commandment of Paul's about providing for ministers of the church really is. He says, there's nothing Satan can bear less than the light of the gospel. Did you hear that? There's nothing that Satan can bear less than the light of the gospel. When the gospel shines, Satan becomes furious, and he tries with all his might to extinguish it. He attempts this in two ways. First, by the deceit of heretics and by the might of tyrants. Secondly, by poverty and famine. Because Satan has been unable thus far to suppress the gospel in our territories through heretics and tyrants, he is trying to do it the second way. He is trying to deprive ministers of the word of their livelihood so that poverty and famine will force them to forsake their ministry. And the unfortunate people, deprived of the word, will eventually degenerate into animals. I, just this past week, I had the opportunity with uh, Neil Labar, the, the bishop in the Anglican Church. Um, he introduced me to the bishop of the, of, a church in, of, of the church in Kenya. And we had a wonderful afternoon, and we were meeting. And this man is very, very poor. The, the average income of, the, uh, of a Kenyan is less than a dollar a day. Very poor. But the center of the Anglican church and the leadership and the explosion of the gospel of faithful gospel leaders is all occurring in the global south and throughout the continent of Africa. There is a massive awakening happening in the, in the continent of Africa in the Anglican church as the gospel is spreading. One bishop that I spoke to baptized 500 believers in one week. They are exploding at the seams, and they have great growth. Now, there are some challenges in Kenya, because the church in Kenya is a little bit more established, but I was talking with uh, Joseph, and Joseph says we, are, he says, we have nothing. We have the gospel, and he's exactly right, because the Western world has all the money, but they don't have the gospel. Amen. But the global South has the gospel, and they have thousands upon thousands coming to faith in Christ as they go to church in Nigeria and get blown up for it. But they don't have any money. And he says, could you please support us and help us? We want to start a Christian radio station, but we have no money. And we want to broadcast the gospel through radio. And I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, we've got so much in this world, in, this, in our life and in our culture, why can we not help build a little tiny radio station for pennies over there? There are seven or eight radio stations above us right now. And one of them, or two of them, 24-7, 365 in the city broadcast the gospel. Why can't we do that to help those who are in need? And my point is, if the gospel is to flourish, Paul says we've got to fund it so that it will occur. 
And he says, we've got to stop funding those who are not preaching the gospel to shut it down. We put our money where our mission is and where our message is. And so Paul's point here is not simply take care of church leaders who are faithful to the gospel. There's an underlying reason for this. Paul wasn't after money. He wasn't like televangelists in our culture who was after a $54 million private jet. He said, quote, so that I can better spread the gospel throughout the world. What he was concerned for is the church's public image in respect to the furtherance of the gospel. And he understood that providing for their own leaders who are faithful, they set a godly example to their unbelieving neighbors and thereby aid the spread and witness of the gospel to them. So that's the first lesson that we have here from Paul with the Thessalonian church is that as we look at this, what is he telling the church? He says, we are to work in such a way that we can provide for the genuine needs of the church, both locally and abroad. Second, here's the last one. We are to work in such a way that we do not hinder the spread of the gospel. We're to work in such a way that we do not hinder the spread of the gospel. In addition to our families and neighborhoods, where do you spend most of your time? It's in our places of employment. Um, I looked up this week the most recent data about the average work hours of, a, of an American worker. And American workers, based upon this past July, averaged 34.5 hours per week. Now, some of you probably are, exceed that greatly. But on average, as of this past July, it's 34.5 hours per week. There are 168 hours in a week. That means that on average, in our culture, you spend 20% of your working years at your place of employment. That's a pretty significant chunk of time. And as I said, for some, the percentage is higher. But the point is, is that spending that much time interacting with others on a daily basis can either win or lose the respect of the, other, of the people who we work with, right? Putting in an honest day's work on a regular basis over a lifetime is a powerful influence on other people. Paul's great concern for the Thessalonians was for the unhindered spread of the gospel in their community. That's why I look at chapter 3, verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians. He begins chapter 3 with a prayer request for the rapid spread of the gospel. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord, the gospel, will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you. Paul understood that this young community of believers in Thessalonica would be judged primarily on the basis of their behavior in society. The, the old saying is true, the tree would be judged by its fruit. And because of this mistaken belief that Jesus' second coming had already happened, some of the members had become insubordinate, rebellious. They were sponging off others with their, to support their new teaching. And this rebellious behavior in the first century would have brought the gospel into great disrespect, dis discredit in the community, and it would have hindered the spreading of the gospel to the very people that they're trying to reach. Paul had already given this same command in his first letter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Listen to this. 
He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. That's what he says here, work in quietness. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. Don't be a busybody and work with your hands. Don't sponge off others in the church. Listen, just as we commanded you. Why? Listen to verse 12. So that, here's the purpose. You will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. All throughout the New Testament, this idea of living a quiet life is always set forth as a way for believers to influence non-Christians coming to faith in Christ. This is why Paul tells the disorderly in 2 Thessalonians 3, he says, work in quietness. Work in such a way that benefits your neighbor, doesn't become a burden to them. This is why he mentions in verses 7 through 9 that he and his co-worker Silas and Timothy, they kept working with labor and hardship night and day so that they would not be a financial burden to anyone. His ambition was to live this quiet life, a life that contributes to the peace and not disorder, the benefit and not the burden of the church. Paul was working in such a way so that he could win the respect of unbelievers in which he lived with. As I've said week after week, we must see this vital connection between the paramount centrality of the gospel in our daily work and our places of employment. That's what Paul teaches us here. We're not to undervalue the work that we do and fail to see it as vitally related to our relationship with Christ and vitally related to this church's witness and mission in our community for the rapid spread and glorification of the gospel. This is what we are to do. He says, while one author says, while Christians will not please everyone, He said they should be sure that they behave according to the accepted standards of secular society, such as the civil order of society, not infringing on the rights of others, the integrity of financial self-support and providing for one's own family. Non-Christians will recognize such conduct as good and therefore not be put off by the wrong, quote, scandal in Christianity. And so Paul is teaching us as believers, this is what life looks like. This is the implication of the gospel in the life of a believer, in the life of a church, how the church lives out their calling in the arena of their employment. The Christian's daily work, Paul teaches, is the the arena of faith working through love for our neighbor's good. And through that faithfulness of our employment, we win the respect of others, and therefore, listen, we adorn the gospel rather than discredit it. And this is Paul teaching us that a crucial ingredient for influencing our non-Christian neighbors to come to faith in Christ, a crucial ingredient of that is just simply how we work on a daily basis. See how practical the gospel actually really becomes? We don't... People think about, oh, I've got to go over there and dig wells to do something significant for mission. While they forget that daily, 20% of their life is influencing, for good or bad, the gospel mission right now. 
And so, yes, it's wonderful to dig wells over there, but it's also wonderful to show up and do an honest day's work here for the sake and spread of the gospel. And that's what Paul teaches us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the uh, implications that the gospel has, even sitting paramount in our daily work. Help us as those who confess the hope of the gospel, the second coming of Christ. Help us to live faithfully in light of that. Help us to live in our daily places of employment in such a way that we can win the respect of our coworkers. And hopefully through that, have an opportunity to bring them to Christ and to bring them into the church. Help us to never, ever bring scandal into the church, but protect our church from false teaching and false teachers that would lead us away from the hope of the gospel. And help us to forever stay committed to the centrality of the blessed hope, the the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may that blessed hope change us in how we live and conduct ourselves, both in the church and in the world. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called The Peace of the Church from the series called The Glorious Second Coming of Jesus Christ. More from the series coming up next time. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. I'm Josh Montez. Thanks for listening and join us next time.